scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 10 and 26. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of China and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apekshed two years after the flood. Verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is God's word. Thanks, Sylvia. Reading scripture for us. And good to see, uh, well, can't really see you all, but uh, good to have you join us today for our service. Uh, let me pray for us as we come to the word together. Let's all pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for your truth and we pray that as we come to your word, we ask that you would quieten our hearts. We pray that you would calm us. Uh, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are soft to your truth. And Father, we pray that you would move us by your spirit. Uh, grant us grace that we might respond to you with hearts made alive, with uh, hands and feet that are quick to obey. Help us to trust in your son. Thank you for sending him for us and for our salvation, and may we come to know him better in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember attending a sports day about five years ago for my younger son Ian at his kindergarten. So they have this sports day about uh, once a year. And you know, this was pre-COVID, so we could all come together. A large number of parents gathered at the school hall and there was great excitement in the air. Uh, however, the excitement was not because the kids were taking part in the competition. In fact, I felt a bit bad for the kids because the excitement was not because of them, but because of uh, something that was happening miles away. Uh, the, it so happened that the time of the sports day coincided with the time of the 100 meters butterfly finals 
at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. So everyone was glued to the screens of their phones. So that's why I felt a bit bad for the kids because no one was really paying much attention to them. Everyone was looking at their phones because the, the time of the race was about to begin. And obviously this was, you know, you know the story, this was Joseph Schooling's uh, race, right, in the 100 meters butterfly. So when he was the first to touch the wall in just over about 50 seconds, uh, the whole place erupted with joy. You know, Schooling had made history by winning Singapore's only, so far, gold medal at the Olympic Games. You know, for a moment, that whole crowd of strangers came together and were united in celebration. Frenchman Pierre de Coubertin recognized the power of sports to bring people together. Uh, Coubertin is known as the father of the modern Olympic Games. His dream was for sports to foster peace among nations. And, and Coubertin said these words. He said, wars break out because nations misunderstand each other. So he conceived of the, the modern Olympic Games as a way in which nations can come together, build understanding, and hopefully uh, reduce the chances of war breaking out between them. I think history has since gone on to prove that his ideas, though very idealistic, uh, turned out to be maybe somewhat lacking. <laughs> uh, so he's, but Kubatan sought to revive the games of ancient Olympia as a way to unite countries. If you, if you look at the Olympic logo, you see five rings, and those five rings are of different colors. And, and the five different colors represent athletes of, from different continents coming together, from the five continents coming together in uh, a month of athletic uh, competition. And the need for international initiatives like the Olympic Games tells us that the world is a very divided place. We don't need to really go very far to realize that uh, there, there are wars, there's terrorism, uh, there's genocide, there's racism, there's all kinds of discrimination in this fallen world. This is, these are all a part of life. And we, we find that they are actually quite normal, sadly, uh, in the fallen world. Things are not what they're supposed to be. As we've seen from Genesis so far, God created the world to be very good. But sin has messed everything up. You know, sin affects us individually, but sin also affects our relationships. And in Genesis 10 and 11, we see how sin separates men and women from one another. Humanity tried to make a name for itself without God and ended up confused and divided. But God, in His grace, as we also see later in this passage, promises to save a people for the sake of His own name. So sin scatters, God gathers. And that's really those two points for our sermon today. So sin scatters, looking at chapter 10 and the first nine verses of chapter 11. So chapter 10 begins a new section in Genesis, in verse 1. Uh, you know, this is the generations of the descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this genealogy that we read about in chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. And this table has three branches, one for each of Noah's sons. Japheth, Ham, and then Shem. So Japheth's descendants are listed in verses 2 to 5. 
He has seven sons, two of whom have a total of seven grandsons. So two groups of seven mentioned for Japheth. Uh, the sons of Ham are listed in verses 6 to 20. And Ham has four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And Cush's son is then singled out and highlighted, right? Nimrod. Nimrod is described as a mighty man and a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it's further mentioned that he established his kingdom in Babel, in the land of Shinar, as in verses 9 and 10. And this connects Nimrod with the story of the Tower of Babel that we'll read about in a bit, in chapter 11. Shem's descendants are listed in verses 21 to 31. And this genealogy spans several generations down to Joktan and his sons. Uh, one thing to note in this genealogy is that it's not comprehensive, it's not exhaustive. So not, not all the generations are listed or mentioned by, uh, in, in detail. Right? So that's, that's important to note in this genealogy. And then verse 32 sums up the table of nations. It says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the descendants of Noah's sons went forth and filled the earth. So what, what, what are some key points we can learn from Genesis 10? Right? What, what are some truths we can pick out from this genealogy? You know, each of Noah's three sons multiply and give rise to many clans or, or families. You know, that, that word can be translated families as well. Many clans, languages, lands, and nations. And this is a repeated phrase for each of the branches of the genealogy, for Japheth, for Ham, and for, Jaf and for Shem's branches. And the three main groups represented by Japheth, Ham, and Shem are not three different ethnic groups. It's not so neat. So it's not as if you have three ethnic groups like that. So it's not, not, that's not how it's divided. But rather, these three sons represent a diversity of peoples, of different families, languages, nationalities, and lands. It's a very uh, complex uh, depiction of the many peoples on earth. After... Noah's sons. But differences aside, all of humanity has one source. We are all descended from Noah and his three sons. I think that's a point that the genealogy makes to us. So we share a common humanity as male and female made in God's image. So just reading this genealogy, we realize that because of this common source that we all have in Noah and his three sons, we really have no grounds to discriminate against one another racially, ethnically, or by nationality. The Bible opposes any discrimination based on race, gender, language, culture, or nationality. We all have one source. We all share ultimately in a common humanity, and ultimately because we are all made in the same image. We're all made in God's image, equally valuable in His sight. So may God help us to repent of any prejudices or biases we may have against those who are not like us. And I think maybe this is a time for us to be honest with ourselves, to ask God to search our hearts, to 
expose in us any hidden prejudice that we may have, whether it's against another ethnic group, uh, another age group, uh, another gender, uh, another nationality, and, and so on and so forth. May God help us to turn away from any uh, sinful discrimination that exists in our hearts. The Table of Nations mentions a total of 70 names. Uh, that's why I said it's, it's not, the purpose of the table is not to be comprehensive or exhaustive, but it's, it, it's meant to make the point, and, and the number 70 is a significant one. So there's 14 names from Japheth, 30 from Ham, and 26 from Shem. So if you add them all up, you get 70 names in the genealogy. And in Scripture, the number 70 signifies completion, wholeness. So the point that this genealogy is making to us is that the fullness of humanity comes from Noah, with whom God made a covenant. And this tells us that the God of the Bible is not some local deity just concerned with one particular ethnic group or nationality, but this God of the Bible is God over all peoples. He is God over us. Now, God's has a, God has a heart for the nations. I think this, this, this genealogy shows that. And God's heart for the nations should motivate us for evangelism and missions. We are to make God and His salvation known to the peoples of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Because this is the God of all peoples. And we should make God known especially to those who are unreached, to unreached people groups who have never heard or have a very, very uh, almost insignificant witness of the gospel among them. And in fact, many peoples from unreached people groups actually live here among us in Singapore. I mean, some of the largest unreached people groups are resident in Singapore as foreign workers. And as a church, let's pray and seek out opportunities to reach the nations. We may not be able to travel, but friends, we don't have to. You know, missions doesn't mean getting on the plane and going somewhere else. The nations have come to us. We, we live among them. They live among us. Let's pray for opportunities and let's be intentional in reaching these with the gospel as well. Since the nations have come to us right to our doorstep, right into our backyard. How did the different languages, lands, and nations come about? We're told this happened during Peleg's lifetime in verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the, the earth was divided. You know, Peleg means division. So his father, seeing the division of the nations, called him Peleg, division. And his brother's name was Jokten. So it's mentioned that the earth was divided in Pilek's lifetime, but the details of how that division came about doesn't, uh, is, isn't given to us in chapter 10, but chapter 11 will tell us how this division occurred. So chapter 11, before the world was divided, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And people migrated from the east. You know, the mention of east recalls God's judgment on Adam and Eve and Cain. You know, 
the East in the Old Testament is often associated with exile. God drove the man and woman out of the garden and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3.24 Cain, likewise, went away from the presence of the Lord in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Chapter 4, verse 16. So the mention of east reminds us that humanity has been separated from God by sin. And verse 2 in chapter 11 go on to say, goes on to say that the people find a plain in the land of Shinar. You remember that's where Nimrod established his kingdom, in the plains of Shinar. And that became the kingdom of Babel or Babylon. So they, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which was the original location of the kingdom of Babel or Babylon, and they settled there. Now, why is this settling significant? You remember, humanity's mission was to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Right? That was their mission. You know, after Noah and his sons emerged from the ark, God gave Noah that clear command. You know, go forth and multiply. You know, this is a new creation. Right? So go forth and obey your commission to spread my glory over the face of the earth. You know, fill the earth with the glory of God. But these settlers in Shinar, instead of obeying God to God's command to fill the earth, they decide to stay put. They decide to settle in one place. And then these settlers go on to embark on an ambitious building project. You know, they can work together because obviously they're speaking the same language. So there's a lot of ease of communication, right? So they're able to say to one another, verse 3, come, let us make bricks and let us burn them thoroughly. So they work hard to prepare building materials to construct a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, this may have been a Babylonian step tower, like a pyramid known as a ziggurat. So I think there's a little picture there of what a ziggurat might have looked like in in that time. So that, that could have been what they were building, something to reach the heavens. As, as we think about their work, you know, we, we must realize that work itself isn't sinful. After all, in Genesis 2, before the fall, God had given work to man as something good to do, right? Work and keep the garden. So work itself isn't sinful. So it's not necessarily sinful that these settlers are building a city and a tower. That, that's actually not the, the crux of the problem. You know, we can glorify God when we do our work with industry and ingenuity, which is what these settlers were doing. They were working hard, they were being smart about it. But the problem here lies not so much with what they're doing. Uh, the problem lies more with why they are doing it, the motivation for their work. And I put it to us that this is a good way to think about our work as well. You know, oftentimes, we're quite focused on the what of our work, you know, what job to do, uh, how many hours to work. Uh, but friends, I think maybe the deeper question to ask is, why that job? You know, why are we working all the, so many hours? Or why are we working not enough hours? Right? The, the why question is more vital because it gets to the heart of our motivation. Now for these settlers, their motivation was self-glory. Right? As it says in verse 4, 
let us make a name for ourselves. Pride propels this project. Arrogant ambition motivates these builders. So they want to be known for the work of their own hands. Think about it. Basically, this is the fall over again. You know, in the garden, the man and woman wanted to be like God. Genesis 3 verse 5. These Babel builders also want to be like God. So they build a tower that reaches the heavens. Not content with their God-given identity as those who are made in God's image, they seek a name for themselves. And basically, they want to be free from God, to have autonomy, to, have, to be independent from Him, to be free to define their own identity, to be free to figure out what their purpose of life is, to be free to decide what is the meaning of their existence, to basically live life without God. You know, I think one example of that in, in modern day times is the idea of being authentic. I think that, that word is used a lot. You need to be true to yourself. Uh, oftentimes what people mean is that you need to listen to your own feelings, be true to your own emotions, you know, fulfill your own desires, do what makes you happy. Uh, friends, I think that's just another way of seeking that same autonomy that these Babel builders wanted, to make a name for themselves, to be true to ourselves, right? to be actually to do so without God in the picture. Now, Babel build, Babel's builders want a name for themselves. Uh, verse 4b says, Lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Basically, they want, they want to make a name for themselves because they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You know, perhaps they fear going forth. They're craving for maybe safety in numbers. They're craving for some kind of security. And they think that building a city and a tower will give them the security that they want. So instead of trusting and obeying God and going forth, they try to find security in their own name and in the work of their own hands. Babel ultimately is a self-sufficient attempt at self-salvation. And friends, I, I think we can all relate to the story of Babel because the spirit of Babel still lives on today. Think about this question. How do pride and fear move us to make a name for ourselves? Do we go about our days seeking a name for ourselves so that we can boast about our successes? Or, or do we seek to make a name for ourselves because we are fearful of being left out, fearful of being left behind, fearful of not looking as successful as our peers, fearful of not living up to our own expectations or the expectations of others around us? How, how much does pride and, and fear kind of motivate us? Whose name are we living for and trusting in? God's or our own? You know, whose reputation are we most concerned about? God's or our own? 
Now, these are all big questions for us. And, and these are the questions posed to us by the story of Babel. Now, verse 5 in the narrative is a key turning point. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's a lot of humor and irony in verse 5. And the funny irony is that while humanity was trying so hard to build up to the heavens, God must stoop down to see what's going on. You know, even the most impressive human accomplishment is as nothing before the sovereign creator. You know, one Bible scholar puts it well. It was a, he says it was a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan attempted by a pint-sized people. I think that's a really good description that perhaps puts us in our place a bit. I, th- I think verse 5 communicates to us that God is God and we are not. You find echoes of verse 5 throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 40.22, for example, says, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is our great God. This is the God who has to stoop down to consider the puny work of our hands. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I think this is why verse 5 is written in a humorous way. It's it's a funny description. People trying to build up, trying to reach the heavens, and God has to kind of look down on them. The humor of verse 5 is meant to help us see how absurd and futile it is for us to try to make a name for ourselves without God. Basically, it, it just doesn't work. That's not what we are made for. Instead of worshipping God with one voice, men and women speak the same language of rebellion against their maker. Verse 6, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, this verse doesn't mean that God is suddenly afraid and thinking, Oh dear, what do I do? No, God is making a very honest assessment of how, if left unchecked, human sinfulness will go from bad to worse. They will continue to multiply their sinful schemes, and because they have one language, they are able to do that even more expediently. And God recognizes that. He recognizes the, the, the sinfulness in man's heart. And this is sad. Right? Even after the flood, even after that cataclysmic judgment on the whole earth, man is still sinful. Man's heart is still turned away from God. And, and man is still using his God-given Abilities like speech against his or her maker. So God mercifully intervenes in this situation. To protect humanity from itself, God turns human craftiness into confusion. So it says in verses 7 to 9, Come, let us go down. Again, go down. 
and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. You know, there's a bit of a play in language because Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Right? So it's a, sort of a bit of a play, in, a bit like a pun, right? a bit like a Hebrew pun in, in, in these verses. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So these verses explain the table of nations in chapter 10. You know, these verses explain how all these languages, peoples, tribes, nations, lands, all, how, how all these came to be in the various parts of the earth. It was not a willing going on the part of these people. They were not going in obedience to God to fill the earth with His glory. Rather, their going was a judgment from God to move them away from Babel. And God did that by confusing their language. So ultimately, we find that sin scatters. This explains why our world is so full of chaos and conflict, division and disunity. Uh, Friends, to, to bring the point closer to home, this is why you and I experience conflict every day, every week of our lives. This is why we have struggles in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, or with our parents, with our friends, with other church members, with our colleagues. Friends, this is why there is disunity in the world. Ultimately, the root cause is sin. Sin has not only separated us from God, but sin has also separated us from one another. So the last narrative in Genesis 1 to 11, you know, the, the, the primeval story of humanity in these chapters closes on this rather dismal note. Verse 9 in chapter 11. You know, it, this story of humanity begins in paradise with God and it ends with judgment, confusion, and exile. A rather sad ending to the primeval story of humanity. You know, friends, if the Bible ended at this point, it makes for pretty dismal reading. But thank God that the Bible goes on from Genesis 11 to the rest. And that's what we want to think about, even as we look at the, the closing genealogy in Genesis 11. So the second point, God gathers. Genesis 11, verse, verses 10 to 26. God shows grace. So He will reverse sin scattering by gathering a people through a promised son. You know, in his covenant with Noah, God promised these words. He said, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Basically, God is promising that he will sustain creation and create this continuation of creation will be the stage on which God's salvation plan will be enacted. So God guarantees that creation will continue so that His plan of redemption will come to glorious consummation. So the continuation of the generations after Noah in verses 10 to 26 
shows God's faithfulness. I think this, this is why there's so many genealogies in Scripture. So one of the purposes of the, of the genealogies in Scripture is, is, is that they remind us of God's faithfulness across generations. They remind us of, of God's uh, sovereignty in protecting and preserving His people, even in very, very trying and difficult times. You know, sometimes when we read the genealogies, we get a bit impatient, uh, maybe a bit befuddled by all the names, and we, we are inclined to gloss over the biblical genealogies. But friends, there's a lot of value, because all of Scripture is God's Word. So there's a lot of value in seeing stories of God's faithfulness by just looking at these generations that are mentioned here in verses 10 to 26. In verse 10, it says, These are the generations of Shem. So this genealogy focuses on Noah's oldest son, Shem, and then focuses on, focuses on his descendants as well. Now again, there's a bit of a Hebrew pun going on in these, in these verses because Shem sounds like the Hebrew word for name. So it is ironic that humanity is trying so hard to make a name for itself, whereas God in chapter 11 graciously provides a name, Shem, for the blessing of humanity. So the point is that our salvation, our security, our significance, our name cannot ultimately be found in our own efforts. These things are graciously given to us, friends, by a God who provides a name. Friend, that this, these verses are full of the grace of God, reminding us that He is the one who gives us a name, that we, we don't have to run ourselves to the ground and burn ourselves out seeking a name for ourselves because God is the one who gives us a name. And He, he graciously invites us to trust in Him, to trust in the name that He provides for us. We are not self-sufficient because God is gracious and we depend on Him. And this analogy in chapter 11 picks up from where the earlier one in chapter 5 left off. So if you remember in Genesis 5 when, when we preached on that passage, that genealogy included 10 generations from Adam to Noah. This one in Genesis 11 also spans 10 generations from Shem to Abraham. So there's a lot of, sort of sim symmetry in these two genealogies. And when we put these two genealogies together, they show the connection between Adam, Noah, and Abraham. You know, if you count the generations, you find that Shem is at the midpoint between Adam and Abram. Both genealogies trace the story of God's grace and faithfulness across all these generations, these 20 generations, even amid worsening human sinfulness. So friends, actually, if, if you read these 11 chapters of Genesis, especially chapters 3 to 11, you know, maybe you find that these genealogies are actually really, really important. Because they show that even as human sinfulness gets worse and worse, God's faithfulness continues. Right? He guarantees and He ensures that the, the promise line continues. The promise line of Adam remains, even amid worsening human sinfulness. 
sin cannot undermine God's plan to save. In fact, if you compare Genesis 5 with Genesis 11, a key difference between these two genealogies is that Genesis 11 omits the repeated phrase, and he died. The the genealogies are quite similar except for that phrase. There's no mention of death in Genesis 11. Why? Because the focus here in this genealogy is not on the consequence of sin, but the focus here rather is on the hope of salvation. God's grace and faithfulness give hope to humanity. You know, just five generations after Peleg, in whose days humanity was divided, Abraham is born to Terah. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Verse 26. What's so special about Abraham, or Abraham, as he is later known? Now, we'll hear more about him next week in our last uh, sermon on this, in this series, Foundations. So we'll hear more about him in Genesis 12. But for now, I just, want to, I just want us to notice the connection between Genesis 10 and God's promise to Abraham. So we'll look ahead a bit in Genesis 12. So after Babel, if you remember, humanity is scattered and divided into families, languages, lands, and nations. Right? Families, languages, lands, and nations. Those four very important words. And when God makes a promise to Abraham, he mentions these four words again in his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or clans, same word, of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 12 verse 7, then it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Right, so le- families, languages, lands, nations. You know, God's promise to Abraham includes the same words as those we first find in Genesis 10. So what's the connection? I, I think the promise is telling us God's promise to Abraham is the answer to the sin and scattering of Genesis 10 and 11. God will gather and reunite the divided peoples of the world. How? Through Abraham's offspring. A son of Abraham will bless the peoples of the world and bring them together again. The strife we see around us, the the division and disunity that we suffer in this fallen world, is meant to point us to our need for a peacemaker, someone who brings true reconciliation and unity. You know, the Old Testament prophets look forward to a day when the nations will worship as one united people under God. Earlier on, Yenadi read for us in the call to worship Zephaniah 3 verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, clearly an echo of Genesis 11, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. You know, Old Testament Israel was supposed to be that light for the nations, that gathering point for the nations. But we know that Old Testament Israel failed 
in its calling to bring the nations together. And then the, the realization of this hope would await the New Testament. So this hope that prophets like Zephaniah spoke about, this hope became a reality at Pentecost. Different people from different places speaking different languages all heard in their own tongues the good news about Jesus Christ. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. God will gather scattered sinners, how? Through this son of Abraham, through Jesus, who is Abraham's promised offspring. And God gives his spirit to all who believe in Jesus so that they all become one in the spirit, in Christ. Jesus has come to save sinners from every race, culture, nationality, and language. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus himself is our peace. Ephesians 2. If we repent of our sins and trust in him alone to save us, he is the peacemaker we need. Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us, bearing God's judgment so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. And Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. And because of what he's done through his life, death and resurrection, only he can reconcile us to God and to one another. Jesus gives us hope for our broken relationships. The gospel is able to heal our relationships as well. The gospel is able to bring warring parties together in real reconciliation. Friends, this is the hope for our marriages. This is the hope for our parenting. This is the hope for the way we relate to our parents, our colleagues, our friends, our fellow church members. It is the gospel who brings, that brings us together. That's so why Paul is able to say in Galatians 3, in Christ, God has united us. We are one new humanity. And he says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus has united us to himself, and in himself we are one, then how should we live as his people? I love this, these verses in Romans 15. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice. Once we were scattered with many languages, confused, but now with one voice, we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, friends, this is a difficult season for us. You know, we've not been able to gather as a church because of various restrictions. But I'm praying that with this easing, with, with, the, with the coming easing of the restrictions, that we're able to gather again as God's people. Friends, we should cherish the gathering of God's people. As, as far as God gives us opportunity, we should come together as His people. We should welcome one another, just as God, for Christ's sake, has welcomed us. This is how we display the unity that Christ has won for us through His gospel. And beloved, God intends for our unity 
to display the saving power of His gospel. When we come together, regardless of our race, our age, our nationality, our culture, or our social economic status, we come together regardless of all these differences, we show that we are one simply because of the gospel. Simply because of the gospel. No other reason. Nothing else in common except for the gospel. So our unity in diversity displays the power of the gospel. And in a fractured world where such unity is unheard of, this is a beautiful and powerful witness to the truth of the gospel, friends. So beloved, our relationships together as the church of God, they speak a lot of the work of Christ in bringing us together. This is a reversal of Babel. True gospel unity transcends worldly divisions. It enables us to build relationships with one another, especially with others who are different from us. You know, if we merely related to others who are like us, then we need to ask ourselves, how are we different from the world? The world tries to foster unity through uniformity in race, culture, nationality, age, or interests like sports at the Olympics. But the gospel creates unity in Christ for no other reason, simply in Christ. If we love and serve one another, regardless of our differences, then the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. Because this is what He came to do, to bring us back to God and to bring people together as one under His loving rule. You know, friends, I'm so encouraged to hear of examples of this kind of love and unity in our body. And I recently I spoke to an older member and he was really heartened because a number of younger members had reached out to him and, and sent him encouragement and, and notes of well, wish, of well wishes. I mean, that, that's the kind of unity that we want to, uh, to build upon. Right? Those are the kinds of relationships that we want to build in this local church. We want to be able to reach out across these lines that so often divide us in the world and to build relationships that display the unity that we have in Christ. So how will we glorify His name together? You know, at the 1924 Olympics, Eric Liddell was the favorite to win the 100-meter sprint. You know, but he decided to forego the race because it was held on a Sunday. Little, who did not want to go against his convictions as a follower of Christ, said these famous words, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, Little didn't seek a name for himself. After the Olympics, he could have gone on to a successful athletic career, but he chose instead to serve as a missionary in China. And Little was faithful to the end. He didn't leave China during the Second World War and he died in a Japanese internment camp. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God has gathered us and given us a name in Christ. So we don't have to try to make a name for ourselves. Jesus has set us free from self-centeredness, from self-sufficiency, from sin and from death so that we can have boldness and hope to live for Him. And this is the hope that motivated Little 
to live and die for the sake of God's name among the nations. And when Jesus returns in glory, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will worship God around His throne. Friends, this is the hope that we have in Christ. Will we live for the glory of God's name? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. We thank you for your faithfulness in calling sinners to yourself. Father, we thank you that though sin has scattered us, though we are disunited and divided by sin, but call us back to yourself. Save us to gather us through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that in faithfulness he has come and he has rescued us. So, Father, help us to trust in Him. Help us to seek first His kingdom. Help us to seek His name and to glorify His name and to trust that His name is all that we need. He is sufficient for us. May we, not, may we no longer seek to make a name for ourselves, but may we seek the glory of Christ's name. We pray this in His name. Amen.